Once upon a time, there was a man named Herod, Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas's father was also a Herod, Herod the Great. When Herod the Great died of some well-deserved disease, the region known as Palestine was divided up among Herod's sons. Herod Antipas was one of them, and he was placed in charge of Galilee and Perea. Now, Galilee, you've heard of, no doubt. Perea is a bit less well-known. It was the region to the east of the Jordan River and north and east of the Dead Sea. It bordered on a place called Nabatea. So, Herod Antipas was ruler over Galilee and Perea. Now, everybody knew that he was ruling on behalf of Rome. The empire liked having locals manage things on the ground. And the success of those local managers was pretty much entirely dependent upon two things. Keep the taxes flowing from the occupied territory to Rome and keep the troublemakers under control. If both of those things were in place, a steady flow of taxes to the empire and an imperial backwater kept quiet, then Herod Antipas could enjoy his rule and all the many, many benefits that came with it. If either of those things were disrupted, well, let's just say a summons to Rome was about as welcome then as an audit letter from the IRS would be today, assuming the audit letter included a possible penalty of death. Well, Herod Antipas um, understood the rules as well as any tin pot dictator. He kept the taxes moving. He kept the rowdies in jail, which left him free to live his life pretty much according to his own less than savory preferences. You're detecting a certain bias from me this morning. Um, the privileged life of a man of power. Now, Herod Antipas had a wife, a Nabataean wife, in fact, a Nabataean princess whose name was Phasaelus. Now, you'll recall that Nabataea was right on the border of Perea, which was under Herod Antipas's control. Herod Antipas's Nabataean princess wife happened to be the daughter of the king of Nabataea, a man named Aretas, Aretas IV, to be exact. Perhaps it was one of those marriages of convenience, a treaty in the form of a young woman's body. Or perhaps Herod Antipas loved Phasaelus. Perhaps she loved him. Details like that often go missing along the way since they're so ordinary. And now the story gets more complicated. Uh, Herod Antipas's half-brother, Philip, was living in Rome with his wife, Herodias, who was the granddaughter of Herod the Great, who was Herod Antipas's father. Now, while visiting his brother, Philip, in Rome, Herod Antipas fell in love with Herodias, and she fell in love with him, and he vowed to divorce Phasaelus and marry Herodias. Phasaelus learned of this plot, went back to her father and Nabatea, and it would be fair to say that border tensions began to run high. King Aretas IV would not let this abuse of his daughter go by unanswered. Meanwhile, Herod Antipas and Herodias went along with their plans and were married somewhere around 27 AD. Okay, so this story being one that requires a scorecard, let's pause for just a brief recap. Herod Antipas um, divorced his wife, whose name was Phasaelus, who was the daughter of the king of Nabataea. Nabataea was a province which bordered Perea, which was a region under Herod Antipas's control. Herod Antipas then married Herodias. Herodias was the granddaughter of Herod the Great, 
Herod the Great was Herod Antipas's father. Herodias was Herod Antipas's niece. Herodias had been married to Philip. Philip was Herod Antipas's brother. This is the stuff that Jerry Springer's dreams are made of. <laughs> so with the Herodian house of cards in place, more or less, let's try to move on. John the Baptist, who began his ministry preaching repentance along the Jordan River, uh, had somewhere along the line expanded his repertoire to include political agitation. At least that's how Herod Antipas saw it. John started out, as we know, by calling Israel to repentance, and folks streamed to the river to hear his preaching and then to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. But by the time of our gospel reading for today, John had shifted his emphasis or perhaps broadened his emphasis and had been taking public pot shots at Herod Antipas and the sordid doings of his household. Now then, as now, political figures prefer low lighting. They like the dark and shadowy places, the smoke-filled back rooms for their dirty dealing. The full lights come on only after the deals have been signed, the accounts have been settled, the rewards safely stowed away, and they've had, a time, had time to brush their teeth and comb their hair and straighten their clothes for the photo op. Well, Herod Antipas was that kind of political boss. He engaged in all manner of bad behavior. But his power enabled him to present himself publicly as worthy of, well, fear, if not respect. So when John started shouting about the corruption under Herod's roof, you can imagine Herod's reaction. John started preaching against Herod Antipas, who was not a good Jew and not a good ruler and even not a good human being. He'd divorced his wife. He'd married his sister-in-law, who was also his niece, and so on and so forth. The kind of thing that can be ignored for a little while, but that after a while begins to grate. Worse, the kind of thing that starts taking on a life of its own with the first century equivalent of Fox News, picking it up and talking about it 24-7. Then people in Herod Antipas' own court starting to whisper about it, maybe to giggle a bit here and there. And so Herod Antipas decided that John the Baptist had to be silenced. So he had John arrested and thrown in prison not for embarrassing Herod Antipas and his family, but for siding with the Nabataean king, whose daughter Herod Antipas had divorced, and his increasingly threatening maneuvers on the border of Perea. John had sided with the enemy. He'd committed treason. Now, one of the commentators I consulted noted that in those days, prison was not a final destination. It was simply where you went to wait for something worse to happen which is one of the creepier things I've ever read in a biblical commentary. Prison was the place you went to await something worse, like death, for example. Well, John was really up against it, and he knew it. His disciples were likely able to um, have access to him, bringing him food and comfort and news from the outside while he waited for Herod Antipas to decide his fate. John was also likely in on the court scuttlebutt, um, rumors that inevitably circulate whenever too many people are expected to keep too many secrets. And John likely knew, or at least suspected, that his days were numbered. Herodias, it was rumored, was not satisfied with just keeping John in jail. She wanted his head, literally. So there John sat captive on what seemed increasingly, increasingly like death row. 
His ministry, which had been so bold and so bright, was probably ended. The fierce and burning call that he'd felt was on the wane. Or maybe John himself was on the wane, tangled up in the political machinations of a petty tyrant like Herod Antipas, caught beneath the wheels of the Roman machine, without even the comfort of his locusts and wild honey to console him. A dark and gloomy place to be. The kind of place that lends itself to feelings of remorse, regret, and a lot of second-guessing. The kind of place that slowly overwhelms you, holding not only your body captive, but your mind and your spirit too. The evil that you thought you were working to overcome is sitting square on your chest and threatening to smother you. The victory you thought was on the horizon is nowhere to be found. The one whose sandals you were not fit to untie, the one for whose coming you prepared, the one you baptized in the Jordan River against your own better judgment, the one whose coming out of the water was met by God's voice. You were so sure. You were so sure that you threw caution to the wind and proclaimed and preached and prophesied and finally wound up in this stinking jail cell. And for what? For whom? Are you the one? John asked, are you the one, or should we look for another? Is all the sacrifice worth it? Is this lousy prison cell worth it? Is God's hand finally going to move? Is Herod finally going to be knocked over? Is Rome finally going to be cast down? Are you the one, or was it all a big mistake? I suspect this won't come as any news to any of you, but sometimes it's really hard to believe. This past Thursday evening, uh, I attended a presentation on mountaintop removal coal mining in southern West Virginia. Mountaintop removal is just what it sounds like. The mining company uses explosives and heavy equipment to literally remove the top of a mountain in order to have easier access to the coal that's under the surface. Everything that's in the way simply gets swept over the side of the mountain wrecking whatever happens to be down there, forest, streams, animal habitats, property owned by human beings. Over 2,000 streams have so far been buried throughout Appalachia. The coal that's been gathered up then gets washed to remove some of the more toxic byproducts of mining. And that water that's used to clean is then collected in gigantic humid-made lakes of poison, some holding billions of gallons of coal slurry. People living near such sites find that their water is hopelessly contaminated with brown and black sludge coming out of their bathroom taps. School children suffer from the coal dust during the production and, and then from the contaminated water after the coal's been cleaned. Cancer is much more common in this region than in other parts of the country. And then that so-called clean coal is transported to power plants in Pennsylvania where it's burned to produce electricity that it's then sold to us by companies like PP&L. So our air stays a little bit cleaner, and our electricity bills stay a little bit more reasonable. And people living near mountaintop removal sites actually work to figure out just how many minutes they have to run away in the event that one of those billion-gallon storage facilities fails. Now, I knew going into it that I would come away from a presentation like that feeling pretty rotten. And I suppose that's how I should feel. One more really bad thing happening in our world. What I didn't expect, but probably should have, was that I 
left feeling trapped. That sense of being all entangled in something that we abhor, something we find utterly repellent, but with no discernible way to break free. That feeling I get when I consider what it means to be faithful to Jesus in our contemporary context, the context of the American empire, or when I feel hopelessly entrenched in an economic system that benefits me while destroying entire cultures and ecosystems, or when I'm made aware again of my own addiction to the consumption of resources, natural and human-made, simultaneously depleting the one and then polluting with the other, the feeling of imprisonment, uh, aware of my own complicity in every evil I oppose that my hands are not now and never have been clean, the feeling I get when the curtains rolled back and the lights are turned all the way up and I can see the ghosts in the machine, I can see death itself working the wheels and the devil in the details, coming face to face with evils like mountaintop removal, yet more evidence of our mindless and careless and foolish addiction to the immediate benefit and our utter heedlessness of the future. I look at these things, these realities of our contemporary world, and they seem so big. They are so big, and I begin to feel like a prisoner. Mountaintop removal and the war in Afghanistan, systemic racism, young people who die way before their time, entrenched and unmitigated global poverty and the disease and famine that accompany it, climate change, the bankrupting of family farms, the collapse of our cities, oil spills which destroy the ocean, toxic chemicals pumped into the earth to produce a few more years of natural gas, and our foolish, foolish unwillingness, or foolish, foolish willingness, I should say, to burn it all down for the sake of a moment's comfort, like setting our own houses on fire in order to stay warm on a cold winter night. And all we have to oppose such principalities and powers, all we have to oppose such monstrously big evils, is a word, a proclamation, a word, a gospel, a word about an advent, a word about a coming, a breaking into history, a word made flesh dwelling among us. That's what we have been given to oppose and to endure all the consequences of human sin. And truth be told, sometimes I wonder if it's really enough. Are you the one? Are you the one? Or should we look for another? John the Baptist asked these questions from his jail cell. Are you the one? Or should we look for another? In other words, did I do the right thing? Did I do the right thing when I accepted the call to stand by the Jordan River and preach to the crowds? Doing my best to prepare the way for your coming. Are you really who I was so convinced you were there by the river? Or did I get it wrong? If I die, and it looks like I may well die, if I die, will it have been because I was really carrying out God's purpose? Will the sacrifice I'm making, will it mean something? Will it count for something? Or am I just another deluded fool? You can see I'm reading John's mind here. Something we all know I really cannot do. But when I imagine him sitting there in that prison, having gotten there because of his efforts to call the powerful and the corrupt to account, his efforts to proclaim the Lord's coming, and to call even Herod Antipas, that old fox, to repent before the coming judgment, when I imagine John sitting there in that prison, I hear him asking questions which I've asked more than once, questions I suspect we've all asked at one time or another. Are you the one, Jesus? Or am I just kidding myself? 
And Jesus answers, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. Those are all wonderful things. Amazing things, really. Living fulfillments of prophecy straight out of Isaiah, made real right before our very eyes. Great and glorious things, and especially to those who can see now and, and walk and hear, to those cleansed of leprosy and raised from the dead, to those poor folks hearing the good news spoken for the very first time as if it were actually meant for them all along. But not the great sweeping out of history's stalls, the great emancipation of creation, the great overthrowing of the rule of evil, not the, the cosmic redemption that John and everybody else hopes for. Not a white steed, but a donkey. Not a powerful king, but a baby. Not a violent revolution, but a new creation. Not a spectacle, but something much smaller, much more simple, much more ordinary. John still sits in that prison. He sits in that prison and, and wonders if all of those small miracles add up to something bigger than time and eternity, something big enough and powerful enough to redeem the whole world. And we can see why Jesus says that those who are not offended by God's response to human sin, those who are not stumbled by the apparent meagerness of that response, the apparent ordinariness and simplicity of that response, those who are not thrown off by the utter foolishness of God made flesh, those who take no offense at the fact that a simple Galilean preacher holds within his flesh and blood the salvation of the world, those people, Jesus says, are blessed. Those who hear the word, who see the small and mundane signs, who dare to believe when there's not a shred of evidence favoring that belief, those who have faith in God's foolishness, they're blessed because even if they cannot fully know it, by believing, and trusting, and having faith, they stand on the right side of history. Whether we can see it or not, God's spirit is moving, Jesus says. God's reign has come and is coming to fulfillment. And that's true. That's true. Whether we're stuck in prison or standing on the mountaintop, it's true whether we believe it or not. Just a few years after John was beheaded, following that notorious orgy in Herod's court, the army of Herod Antipas was roundly defeated by the army of King Aretas IV of Nabatea. Aretas IV had avenged the besmirching of his daughters and his own honor. Many Jews of that day saw Herod's defeat as God's judgment on him for having John executed. Maybe that's the case. We'll never know. And in any event, by that time, John, John the Baptist was beyond the need for evidence of God's ongoing work in the world. Like John, we inhabit a work in progress. And many times that progress seems far too slow. We look around and we see all the evil still happening in our world, some of it through human greed and arrogance, and more of it for sound economic reasons, reasons which are guaranteed to keep us warm and well-fed while the rest of the planet suffers. Good sound political reasons, realistic rather than naive reasons that 
keep us safe and secure with all the electricity, oil, and gas that we need. Reasons that too often lull us into complacency, into accepting our fate, into settling into our prison cells and then decorating them so that they seem more like home. But every once in a while, the curtain gets pulled back. A prophet shouts out that the emperor really has no clothes and is corrupt and venal and a fraud to boot. Another points out the evil being done in our names and for our benefit. The mountains being destroyed, the streams poisoned, the air made cancerous, the human communities being devastated. And we catch a glimpse of the truth behind the smoke and the mirrors. We see again the size and scope of the evil in our world and our own complicity in it. And we are made aware again of the chains that bind us and the walls of our prison cell. And we can begin to fall into despair. And then God gives us a word, a word made flesh. And in our despair, we may wonder if that word is really enough. Is it enough to overcome evil and death and human sin? Are you the one? Are you the one? Are you the one? Or should we wait for another? Sisters and brothers, the good news is that Jesus of Nazareth is the one. He is God made flesh. And his coming did inaugurate God's redemptive work in the world, the final healing of all things, the coming reign of God. And while we might wish for an immediate resolution, a quick solution, a sweeping clean of history's stalls, a miraculous and instantaneous setting of things to rights, God has chosen another way, a way that is smaller, meeker, milder, neither violent nor destructive. Now, we in our culture have been socialized against such small responses to big things. We've been socialized against nonviolent responses to violence. But that's the way God has chosen. The world is going to hell in a handbasket, and God sends a baby to keep that from happening. Like John, we sometimes wonder if we got it right. And Jesus keeps coming back to us with small signs, little miracles, a leper cleansed, a blind eye now seeing, a poor hearing good news for the first time. And Jesus points us to those signs of redemption and tells us, don't be afraid. You didn't make a mistake when you placed your trust in me. Your advent waiting is not in vain. I am indeed the one you've been expecting. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Keep on walking. Keep on walking with me and don't stumble. And I will lead you out of prison. And I will heal the world of the consequences of human sin. I will make it all come out right in the end. Are you the one? Yes. And amen.